You can open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or want to use one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 875, so you can turn there if you'd like. If we get some house lights on so people can see the pages they're looking for. Uh, this little communication card is sitting right in front of you, hopefully. Uh, it's just a way for us to hear from you and communicate with the staff. If you have a prayer request, if you have a... Um, Medical need, just whatever's going on there. If you're new with us, we'd love to just get to know know you a little bit. You can share with us whatever info you'd like. Uh, just just a way for us to kind of let you know a bit more about the church and what's going on around here. Uh, a lot of things are online. Uh, we try to keep that really up to date, so it's a good way to um, to keep tabs on on what's happening uh, here at the church. If you're a Christian in here this morning, um, and you have been a Christian long enough to understand that uh, one of the one of the roles of a Christian really is to, is to share God's message and to be a witness, to, to bear witness to your faith. Uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, um, then you have, you have no doubt at some point been accused of believing in a fairy tale. And uh, sometimes it's done in a real snarky kind of a way, and sometimes it's done very, very politely, but just saying, what what you're telling me, what you seem to believe, and what you've placed your faith in, sounds like a fairy tale to me. Now, I don't know what your response is to that, um, but I've had, I think, all of these before. Sometimes you uh, might respond with indignation, you know, and annoyance. Uh, maybe it's doubt. Uh, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe I am believing a fairy tale. Uh, some of you are competitive, and that competitive drive jumps in, and you say, I'll show them. I'm going to start kind of arguing this, and I'm going to win this one. Uh, and some of you have responded to that with calm resolve. You already know that it's settled what you've placed your faith in, so that doesn't feel threatening to you at all. If you're anything like me, you've, you've probably experienced all of these before. And when someone says you believe in a myth, you're basing your life on a fairy tale, and they're referring uh, to the scriptures and to things that you hold precious and dear, there's probably some reaction there. I'll be really upfront with my goal today. My goal today is this. It's either to strengthen your trust in the Bible or it's to shatter your outright denial of the Bible. Some of you walk in here with a general trust of the Bible. You've built your life on it. You tend to study it and read it. Maybe you're sitting in here because you want to hear from God's word. I want to strengthen that today. Some of you walk in as skeptics and you say, I'm pretty sure what I'm about to hear is going to be from a fairy tale. It's myth. It's story. It's these people kind of taking things a little too far with, with what may have some, some good pointers in it, but certainly isn't the word of God. I want to shatter your outright denial of it. We're in a book called Second Peter, and it's named after the author, Peter the Apostle, disciple of Jesus, pretty prominent figure as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this book, particularly in the passage we're looking at today, Peter is bolstering the church. And yet while he's bolstering the church and building them up and lifting them up and reminding them of some things, he's actually proclaiming some things to unbelievers, not just in his day and age where that letter would have been circulated, but today as well. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, friends, church, hang on to this life ring. This life ring that I'm talking about Hang on to it. It floats. It floated yesterday. It's going to float tomorrow. Reach for it. Cling to it. 
remember all these things that have been written down for centuries. They've come true in our lifetime. Build your life on this. It all fits together. Pay attention and you won't drown. He's making one of the big sweeping claims about Scripture here this morning. That's that's what we're going to look into. As Heather read the passage this morning, that's what she read about. A claim about the Bible. If you're new with us, you'll see a life ring, a sword, and a trumpet. And our men's group this week, uh, in our community groups, I asked you to explain what these symbols meant. They did pretty good on chapter 1, which is good because we've been soaking in chapter 1 a lot. A uh, little more shaky on chapter 2 and really foggy on chapter 3. Uh, so let me just review very quickly. Uh, life, life ring is chapter 1. And really all of chapter 1 has been about Peter saying, guard yourself. Be a lifeguard for yourself. Guard your own life. And then all in chapter 2 is talking about these false teachers that are going to come up. And our weapon is the word of God. It's growing in the knowledge of God. And then chapter 3 is a trumpet signifying the coming day of the Lord. And he's going to get all into the, the absolute surety of that. Woven through the entire book is what elsewhere the scripture calls the sword of the spirit. What is the sword of the spirit? What is it? It's the word of God referred to as the sword of the Spirit. And it's essential to accomplishing the will of God. The Word of God is essential, non-negotiable, to accomplishing the will of God, both forming Christ in you and in defending you against being duped by false teachers. The Bible being compared to a sword is a pretty interesting one. You think about swords. Swords can be put up on display. Think about movies you've seen where a sword was hung up over a massive fireplace, maybe with some shields around it. A sword can be on display. It can be collected. It can gather dust. But a sword really doesn't do any good. It doesn't really do what it's designed to do unless what? Unless it's unsheathed in the battle. Now, you can even have a sword at your hip and know tons about swords in general and still have you do it no good. Is that not like the Word of God? I mean, can't we have the Bible gathering dust? Can't we have a collection of Bibles? Can't we display a family Bible over the, over the fireplace? And it all generally feels kind of good. But unless we unsheath the Word, unless we open it up and it begins to take its effect on us, it's a little bit like a sword behind a glass case instead of in the battle. I want to look for a moment at how the Bible brand is doing. If the Bible were a brand, how, how is it doing in 2014 North America, specifically America? Some new research came out this week uh, by a pretty well-known port holster uh, named George Barna. And just a little bit about the research, he sampled uh, a 1,000 young adults ages 18 to 30. This is called the millennial generation, or sometimes you'll hear it called the mosaic generation. So he's specifically asking, how is the Bible perceived amongst this generation in America? A thousand uh, adults or, you know, were, were sampled. It was taken in the United States uh, near late August, and here's what they came up with. They kind of compiled some things. You don't need to worry really about seeing the details of this. You can go to barna.org and, and see this yourself. But just a couple of things. Uh, number one is this, that it's their, their, their top source for moral truth 
amongst Christians, amongst practicing Christians, those who would identify themselves as church being important, I believe in Jesus, that sort of thing. Their number one source for moral truth is from the Bible. Well over the church or their parents. Secondly, I wanted to point this out. 96% believe that the Bible contains everything a person needs to know, uh, to, to live a meaningful life. Now, we just looked at that in 2 Peter. Those are both really scriptural ways to think about the Bible. I was really, really encouraged by that. I'm thrilled that these young adults found uh, the scriptures as their source for moral truth over their parents and over the church. Those are really encouraging numbers to me. Uh, here's infographic number two. How about amongst non-Christians? Now, you probably really struggle to see that. It's starting to feel like an eye test, right? So don't panic. Your license is not on the line here. But let me just give you a couple of things. 62% have never read the Bible. 62% amongst those who would count themselves non-Christian. Uh, 30% think it's practical. 19% think it's irrelevant. And a full 27% view the Bible as dangerous. Here are some of the adjectives along here as to, as to how people would, would choose to describe the Bible. Um, story, mythology, symbolic, fairy tale, historic. Maybe not all that surprising to see what the information is about those who would profess to be a Christian, right? Versus those who would profess not to be a Christian. But interesting nonetheless, and, and in this article they draw some conclusions to this information. The truth is, people have always had opinions about the Bible. It's an interesting conversation starter. Just to turn the conversation to Jesus and or the Bible leads to some really interesting conversation. I find that people are very kind of kind of pliable and amicable and polite when it's spirituality and God and uh, even heaven and hell, all those topics. I don't think those are threatening at all. But when you turn it to the Bible, what are your thoughts on the Bible? Have you read the Bible before? What do you think about that? And rather than ask that so that you can share some things, just genuinely ask the question. Leads to some interesting conversations. It's okay to talk about spirituality in general, heaven and hell, those kinds of things. But bring up Jesus. What do you think about the man Jesus, the one born in Nazareth, the one that we talk about at Christmas and Easter? What do you think about that person? Again, leads to some interesting conversations. So people have always had opinions about the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? The Bible makes some really, really big claims about itself. Okay, Let me give you just, just a couple of them. Uh, it says of itself that it is relevant and that it is profitable for living life. Not profitable like some TV televangelists think it's profitable, but profitable as in good for leading this life. It says of itself that it's eternal. It says of itself that it's true. It says of itself that it's living and active, able to discern the, the heart and the, the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And today is one of those passages of Scripture that makes a giant claim about itself, that it's not produced by man, but instead is produced by God using people in their personality to produce it. Here's my question for you this morning. Again, whether you're a brand-new Christian, a non-Christian, a seeker, 
apathetic or a strong Christian today. I want you to envision a time in the future when, when you could be so certain about the claims of Scripture that, that just like your bed, you're restful in your bed probably last night because you didn't question whether it was going to hold up all night or, or, or not. Isn't that restful? I mean, when you just lay in that thing, some of you, some of you have had a bad experience. I can tell who's had a bad experience when you go up and, and you know, you kind of test chairs or, or test things before you sit in them. But in your home bed, you just get in there and you just rest in it. You lean into it and you don't give a second thought as to whether it's going to support you or not. What if you could, what if there was a day coming in the future when you could so fully trust the claims of scripture, so completely believe the warnings that it gives, that instead of having that pre-wrestling match of even wondering if that's true, much less the bad news it's telling you or the comfort that it's giving you, you're having this energy spent on whether it's true or not. What would it be like to fully lean in on and trust the Bible implicitly? And not check your brain at the door, not just believe something because someone else said it, but in your heart of hearts, in your gut, to know that the Scriptures are true. I long for you to have confidence in the Bible because the Bible deserves our confidence. I also hope that you've doubted the Scripture's reliability. You know why? It means that you're using reason and logic and your brain, the very tools that God has given to us, to survive in a fallen world. Do we live in a trustworthy world by and large? No. I'm hating to break that to you, but that's the truth, right? So God's given us these things to test things. We just looked at this uh, a few weeks ago in our fighting forest fires, but one of the unwanted emotions for a Christian is doubt. I think it's an unwanted emotion in relationships. If you doubt your spouse's faithfulness, if you doubt your boss's good intentions towards you, it's an unwanted emotion, isn't it? And it can kind of run rampant. When talking about our spirituality, when talking about God, um, I shared this, that the dot, that doubt is a little bit like manure. It has the ability to be like uh, a toxin, or it has the ability to be nourishment. If, if it's all doubt, then that's like all manure, trying to grow things out of all manure. It becomes a poison to it. It eventually begins to kill every vestige of spiritual life and growth that was growing in there. Some of the philosophers, I'm reading through a book right now that kind of takes, takes you through kind of the whole swath of thinking from, from a long time ago until present by a guy named Francis Schaeffer. It's a hard read, but a very interesting read. Many of the philosophers that people quote and kind of hold up as heroes, they were all doubt kinds of guys. And you know where it led to? Despair. Utter hopelessness. Crazy places. Attempted suicides. Successful suicides. Doubt can also be like Manure, though, in that it could be nourishing. Doubt has the ability to grow our faith, to deepen our faith, to stretch our understanding and our relationship with God, to really wrestle in and say, God, is it really true? Is what you are telling me really true or not? I don't want to be duped. That, doesn't, that sounds too good to be true. That sounds too scary to be true. That doesn't seem to fit my personal experience. 
But I've been wrong before in my personal experience. Those kinds of questions, that kind of leaning in, if it's really true, God can handle that, can he? Isn't the truth big enough for any question you can throw at him? There's two doctrines that are in view today. Revelation and inerrancy. And they go something like this. This is really simplified. But revelation is that we only know of God what he reveals to us. Everything else is guesswork. Whatever we might know about God has to come from God. He's revealed to it. There's something hidden and he's shown it to us. If he hasn't shown it to us, then we're reaching and grasping at straws. The teaching of inerrancy says that the Bible contains no errors. God wrote a book. And just as he cannot lie, he is not wrong. So those are the two doctrines that are in view. And this isn't the only place it talks about them. That's why they become a doctrine. It's a collection of teaching. It's this kind of wealth of scripture that points in these two directions. There's at least a couple of ways to approach the Bible. Number one is that you think of, you think of the Bible as, as a collection of various people's views toward God, toward good, toward evil. And one person's interpretation is just as good as another. There's no need to be rigid. There's no need to be dogmatic in our approach to it. It's up to each person and their free will, whether they choose to follow part of it, whether they choose to follow the whole thing, whether they choose to be strict in their interpretation or loose in their interpretation, or whether to disregard it altogether. That's one approach to the Bible. Another approach is this, that the Bible is supernaturally delivered and has been supernaturally preserved for us today. It's authoritative and trustworthy. It has stood the test of origin and cohesiveness. Jesus from the Bible makes it clear that it was his authority and that his authority uh, rested on it. And so we will do the same. We'll take the scriptures to the same way. The first approach stands in judgment over the scriptures. The second approach sits in judgment under the scriptures. Two different approaches, two different starting points. I just want to point that out because as we approach this topic, chances are you are starting from one of those two places. In here, on church, on Sunday mornings, if if this is your first time, welcome. I'll just let you know. I say this periodically. Ben says this periodically. We are here to sit under the Scripture's teaching. That's the approach. That's my starting point that we work from as a group of Christians, learning from God, hearing from God's Word. But as we move forward in this discussion about the the truthfulness of the Scripture itself, if we're starting from two different starting places, it's good to just at least point that out. One more thing to frame our discussion, and then we'll get into it. Who has heard this before? You can't prove the Bible. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay? Probably many of us have, have heard that. You can't prove the Bible. Now, we don't have time to go around and ask each individual, what do you think of that? Is that true or not true? My guess would be there's kind of a mixed bag in here today, even amongst Christians. Can you prove it or can't you prove it? It's a really important point of clarification to get this Many times, if you get into a conversation with someone and they are making that statement, here's where their brain is going to, okay? They are going to uh, scientific proof. Now, scientific proof, as many of you know, is just showing something as fact by repeating the event in the presence of the person who's questioning it. 
That's what scientific proof is all about. There is a controlled environment where observations can be made, data drawn, and hypotheses empirically verified. I think this is going to happen. I've tested it in all these different ways. It happened. Therefore, I have what? Proven it. How did you prove it? Scientifically. What grade do you learn the scientific method in? Who's been in school recently? Give it to me. What, second grade? Wow, these kids are smart. I think I was still finger painting in second grade. Um, <laughs> so you learn the scientific method, right? That's one of the tools of someone who is wanting to prove something scientifically. Now, if this were the only way to draw conclusions, the only way to prove anything, then, then we would be able to prove a relatively small amount of things that we hold in our head as true. Here's why. We can't use scientific proof to verify that you ate breakfast this morning. Rico, did you eat breakfast this morning? Oh, yeah! <laughs> now, uh, with, with Rico saying, oh, yeah, he sounded pretty convincing, right? But we can't go back in any event in history and recreate it in the same way that the scientific method demands to prove that that event happened or not. Now, what if Rico stands up, stomps his fist, he's bigger than me, starts rushing me, he's getting all fired up, right? That still, that does nothing to prove whether or not he had breakfast or not. So, that leads us to something else that we're all pretty familiar with, and it's this. It's the legal historic proof. Now, the scientific proof is not inferior to legal historic proof. It's just different. Legal historic proof is used in a court of law. Legal historic proof is what we base all of our histories on. They lean on things like oral witness, eyewitness accounts, written documentation, and exhibits like a gun or a glove or a notebook. Right? So the right question to ask this morning when we're thinking about, well, can you prove the Bible? I've heard you can't even prove the Bible. The right questions to come at it with might be something like this. What are the facts? Is there proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Does the weight of evidence suggest that I can trust the claims being made about this document, either from within or from someone else making the claim about it? Is it reliable? Is it historic? And from this passage, I want to show you two different witnesses. And from these two different witnesses are these two kind of doctrines that are, that are introduced. So number one is eyewitness. Peter wrote this book. And so he's writing as an eyewitness. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Have you ever had an event occur in your life that you know you will never forget because once it happened, it fundamentally changed every single day after that? Women who've gone through childbirth say yes. Right? You'll never forget that. Did it change every day from that point on? Absolutely. So, so many of us have had events where, you know, that, that phrase is tossed around pretty lightly sometimes. Oh, you'll, you'll, this person will never forget that. And they do. But some of you have had life-altering events, good, bad, that you'll never forget. Peter had one of those. He saw Jesus, and he heard from God. 
all on the same day. It's called the transfiguration. All four Gospels mention it. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all mention it in pretty good detail. You can read all about it. Go and read the story of the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, it was the ultimate mountaintop experience. Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus and these three disciples that he's taken up to the mountaintop. And we don't really get a sense or understand how long this time frame happened, but at some point, Jesus, Jesus basically removed the veil and they got to see him in his majestic glory for some amount of time. And it was, as you can imagine, life-altering. And then to top things off, God spoke into that moment. What we know is that Peter, um, who tends to run his mouth first and engage his brain later, some of us can identify with Peter, Peter kind of blurted something out in that moment. And he talked about this little proposal, and it almost seems like mid-sentence, God speaks into it. And we have it in our passage here today. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. At least one of the Gospels adds this. Listen to him. Pipe down, Peter. One of the other Gospels says that he was fearful. He didn't even know what he was saying. He just kind of blurted something out. It's a life-altering experience. He wasn't alone. John was with him. If you read 1 John, he says, look, I was there. I saw and I tasted and I touched. I witnessed this with my senses. Years, decades later, these guys are writing to build up the church. It's altered their very life. I don't know if you're into previews, but it's a really cheap way to see movies. And if it's a bad one, you just wasted a minute and 30 seconds instead of like two hours. So I watch a lot of previews. But previews are meant to do one thing. They're meant to draw you in and create this, this hunger for the full feature film, right? I mean, you see this preview, you're like, oh, I can't wait to see the whole thing. What Peter experienced on that mountaintop was a little preview. It was a little tiny preview that just said, here's, here's a little bit of my majesty. Here's what's really going on. It's interesting because a week earlier, Jesus made this claim. He said, some of you won't taste death until you experience the kingdom of God. And then six or seven days later, this happens. A little preview. And guess what? That one moment altered his life to where here's what he could not stop thinking about. He can't stop thinking about when he's coming again in power and glory and majesty. Because it's not just been revealed to him kind of through words. He's seen it. And it changes his life. Chapter 3, the trumpet. All of chapter 3 is that it's coming. Live your life differently because Jesus is coming. God didn't just leave it to eyewitness, but he included words. That really is something called ear witness. It's the idea of what you heard, what was going on. Wouldn't you love the soundtrack to the transfiguration? What did they talk about? Moses, Elijah, Jesus in glory, and three dumbfounded uh, disciples. I would have loved to have it recorded what was talked about. But it's not meant for us. Those are the things of God and they're not, they're not preserved. God acts and then he speaks clearly into it to explain what's going on. Many people have no idea even if, if what's happening even if they're staring at it. You ever been to an art gallery? 
You ever been with that person in the movie that constantly is going, Who, who's, who's that person? What's going on? Why are they saying that? And you're there, and you've been tracking the story, right? And you're like, shh, it's from the opening scene, shh, right? They're right there. They're staring at it, but they don't understand what's going on. I just saw a lot of spouses nudging right there. <laughs> Sorry. There's, there's, there's counseling available after the service. So it's not enough just to see experience. It's not just just to go through life. Interpretation to our life is really, really massive. And what God does over and over is he acts and then he speaks. Let me just give you a couple. This is, this is certainly true at the transfiguration. God acted and then he spoke into what was going on. Not only did we see Jesus get majestic, what just happened? Did he get really clean? Did a light bulb turn on inside? What happened? God spoke. This is the chosen one. Go read Psalm 2 sometime. There's this, there's this beautiful kind of tie into Psalm 2. It's my beloved son. I'm well pleased in this one. It's the Messiah. God spoke to clarify this miraculous event that was happening. Think about creation. God acted. He created the world. And then what did he do? He spoke into it. It is good. Think about the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah. Isaiah was told by God to strip down and walk around barefoot. And then God finally spoke in to explain what was going on after three years. You want to talk about a crazy object lesson. After three years, God says, okay, now tell the people, this is what's going to happen to Egypt and Ethiopia. Assyria is going to take you down, and they're going to march you out as prisoners, and your nakedness and your barefoot will be to your shame. It was a pronouncement of judgment. God acted, but people were certainly confused by that. But it gets pretty burned into your mind after three years of this crazy prophet of God. But then God speaks, and those three years come to clarity. How about Jesus breaking bread, distributing the cup of wine, and then saying what? He speaks into that. This is my body. It's broken for you. Take it and eat. Become part of this. Let's do this. So many places in Scripture where he does that. He speaks because evidently seeing isn't enough. We need hearing. We need explanation. So Peter, having established that his experience was as both an eye and an ear witness, and that you can trust the Scriptures because of that, he now turns to the written word. He says in verse... Uh, 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What he's referring to here is the Old Testament. I want you to ask a question and just think with me for a moment. How could God have revealed himself, brought us to himself, and brought us to faith? How could God have done that? Let me hear some real answers. That's a real question. I want real answers. Get creative here. How could it have happened? Here's a little hint. There's almost no wrong answer. I can't really think of one. Through a dream. What else? Through silly putty. Right? I mean, what else? I mean, let's just keep going. Face to face. Face to face. Yeah. He could have shown up to every single person. That's right. What else? Who said that? That's jumping the gun. Rob, you're killing me. Joy. 
Appearances, absolutely. Life experiences. Conviction. A sense in your spirit. Finger painting. I mean, right? He, he could have used anything, but as Rob so graciously pointed out, what did he ordain? He ordained a written book. Isn't it interesting? Could God not have invented video way back when? Easy. He's God. Jeremiah, you're going to invent this thing called a video camera. I could have done, could have done it, right? Now, can God use all of that? Yeah. I think God's used everything probably that was just mentioned. But fundamentally, God wrote a book. He ordained that it would be the written word. <clears throat> Romans 10, 14. Just jot that down if you're taking notes. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Look at our passage today, 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the prophetic word. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that first of all is of most importance, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The witness number two is the written words of God. Collectively, we call it the Word of God. And it has to do with the doctrine of inerrancy. And here she touches on the idea that God, the Holy Spirit, superintended the human authors of Scripture so that using their own individual personalities, their own thought processes, their own uh, vocabulary, they composed and recorded without error the exact words God wanted produced. It's pretty interesting that in our advanced age, the idea of putting something in writing is still really, really important to us, isn't it? How many of you deal in business every single day where if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist? Is that you? Yeah, all the time. How about our laws? How about legal cases? It's all written down. Why? Because something written down is binding. There's no more he, he, he said, she said taking one another's word for it, bickering back and forth. Look, it's in writing. It's dated. It's signed. Here it is. Carries a lot of weight. God put it down in writing. Does anyone else find it fascinating that God risked putting down his heart and his will in writing for all of time? Now, if God is sovereign and there's no threat that he's wrong, that's not a scary proposition at all, is it? But think about it for one moment. You writing something down that cannot be edited or changed in any way for the rest of time. Think about putting almost anything down on any subject. It's pretty easy to see in our limited capacities to say, I bet in six months, six years, or 6,000 years, I'm going to want to change that. There's a giant risk in doing this if you're not sovereign. How many of you sweat that when you're about to sign a contract? You're going, I don't know if I'm going to feel the same way about this six months from now. God 
wrote it down. It's really profound to think about. Now, the reliability of any revelation has everything to do with what you do with that revelation. If you receive news and you think it's reliable, you might act on it. If you receive news and you know it's not reliable, you just dismiss it. There's too much information. You don't even carry on to it. Let me give you an example. Friend comes to you and says, did you know that you can buy X for this amount? And you're in shock. You say, no way. How do you know this is true? The person says, well, because I bought one. I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an example. I went and got this thing, and I got it for this amount. Now, that person's an eyewitness. They've just shared a personal experience with you. But seeing it in your face that you're still skeptical, they might say this. Here, let me show you this ad. Here it is right here. What are they doing? They're pointing to a document now. It's written down. It's got the store logo on it. It's got the product, and it's got the price. And what do you look for? The date, right? Is that still valid? And he's got the date. They've just put it in writing. And they've shown that to you. That's to back it up. So you begin. Here's what you begin doing. Do I trust this person talking to me? Has he or she lied to me before? Do they appear to be sane in this moment? What do they have to gain by lying to me? I mean, you start, you do this in a blink of an eye. But that's what you're doing right now. You're questioning the reliability of the eyewitness. You're questioning their experience. Then you look to the written document. Is it legit? Does that look like a real thing? Is that a, is that a photoshopped image from some pranksters that want to ruin my day to get me excited about buying this for this amount? Or is it real? We do this all the time. We make tons and tons of judgments. We actually build our legal system that have binding things on its citizens based on the reliability of eyewitnesses and the, the veracity, the truthfulness of a document. Not so strange as a Christian to lean on eyewitnesses, testing out if, they, if what they say is true, and the truthfulness of a written document. Peter is saying this, trust in God's revelation. You have the testimony of an eyewitness, namely me, and... You have the more weighty, written revelation of God, which confirms it. You might hear people say, thus saith the Lord. Maybe they don't use King James like that, but they are speaking for God, and people speak for God all the time. Second Peter 1.20, look at it. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No true prophet of God ever woke up one day, ate his breakfast like Rico, stretched and said, yeah, today's a good day to write some prophecy. I'm going to write me some prophecy. That's what's going to go on. I'm feeling it today. Falls in the air. I'm going to write me some stuff. I'm going to do a little drama for the people. I'm going to strip down and go barefoot. I think I'll do it for three years. That's not what true prophets do. But people do that all the time. Prophets don't do that any more than a sailboat would say this. I'm going to get out on that water and I'm going to just, I'm going to get myself over to that other port over there. 
This, this phrase used in the passage today, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is a very general term. It's used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about a sailboat that is carried along by the wind, steered and directed, but going where the wind goes. And so the Holy Spirit guided prophets, telling them what to say. It's good to know the truth because counterfeits are rampant. In fact, many in the name of the God of the Bible preach things that the Bible simply does not preach. Right now, it's very, very easy to go out and find people preaching in the name of the God of the Bible, even holding up the Bible and saying, we're going to speak from this book and we're going to do explicitly what it says. And they will preach an it's-all-good message. Love wins out in the end idea. Essentially, many passages, or many preachers out there I'm hearing Here's what I'm hearing. That sounds an awful lot like eat, drink, and be merry. It's really all good. And I thought about it. If I, if God didn't open my eyes to the truth of Scripture, I would buy into that. I really would. I would attend a church like that. That would tickle my ears. I would like hearing that over and over and over again. It's all good. And you know what? I'd be like way better at surfing or something. Because the message is, chill out, relax, go do some other things. It's all good. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. See if this rings true in our day and age. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets, who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord, They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, here's what they say, no disaster shall come upon you. I've asked God for easier messages to preach than he calls me to preach. It's kind of hard constantly preaching the words of God to people. Haven't you felt that, Christian? I mean, we're all witness bearers, right? We all bear witness to a message that, is it all doom and gloom? Of course not. But does the good news make any sense without the doom and gloom? Of course not. It becomes a cheap little trinket that you can take it or leave it. So the easier lifestyle is to go around just preaching. I mean, I could could make all of you feel really, really good this morning. Maybe fanning the flame to your own stubborn, rebellious heart. Maybe keeping you in the bondage that you're under in your own sin. All because I'm not speaking the words of God, but something invented in my own mind. People speak for God all the time. When someone speaks for God, what am I doing right now? I'm speaking for God in essence, am I not? I'm preaching from His Word. When someone speaks for God, what do you do with that? I hope you test it. What are you to test it against? If all you have is reason, experience, and whether I contradict myself, or a feeling, or kind of the smell test, I'd say you're in trouble. The Scriptures make another claim. Test Scripture against Scripture. The Bereans are held up as an example. Remember them? They went daily back to the Word to see if what was being taught to them was actually true. 
And it says, many of them, therefore, believed. That means non-Christians, non-believers, were testing it against the truth of Scripture to see if what was being said was true. Someone said that the Old Testament is the root of our faith and the New Testament is the fruit of it. If you read the whole of Scriptures, and specifically, although by implication the New Testament is there, Peter's really commanding us to pay attention. You will do well, brothers and sisters, to pay attention to the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament hard to read sometimes? Yeah. Not the Psalms, not the Proverbs. Those are pretty devotional. I like those. But even in those, you read some things, you're like, huh? How about genealogies? How about some of the histories? Who cares what happened way back then? I barely care what happened in my own city 100 years ago. Hard to read the Old Testament sometimes. But you know where the Gospels really get shown off for even more of their glory? Is when you get the Old Testament. Some have been Christians a long time, been reading the Bible a long time. Isn't it powerful to read something in the Old Testament and go, no way. I get why Jesus said that. No way! That's crazy! And to get it firsthand, man, it just, it just bowls you over and you go, God, God, this all fits. There's no way unless you're behind this. The glories of the New Testament, the glories of the Gospels, shine brightest when they're supported by the Old Testament. God ordained a book. Stay in it. Cling to it. He wrote it down. He doesn't waste books. There's some in the Old Testament. I'm like, ah, just by faith, I trust that you didn't waste these words. But it seems like a lot to say the same thing. Do I really know, need to know how to sacrifice that dove four times over? Why do you have that? But man, then you get to see Jesus as the sacrifice. You get to put yourself in the sacrificial system in the old covenant, and then you see the fruit of it in the new covenant. Wow. It makes grace not something cheap, but something that you realize, wow, that dead bird is me. That dead bird is taking on my sin, wringing its neck, spilling its blood, because that's a punishment for sin. And that's heaped on this animal. And that was heaped on Jesus Christ once for all time. Wow. Let me invite the band to come on up. I want to speak to non-Christians for just a moment. If you, have, if you are not a Christian, and the Bible really calls us to a point of decision, to a point of turning from our sin. It's a biblical word called repent. It means turn around and throw yourself on Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Begin following him. It's that simple. If you've not yet made a profession of faith and you've not been reborn spiritually, here's my challenge to you. Don't be duped. Many people are speaking for God, using the Bible, saying that they use the Bible, and they are lying to you. Many of them willfully so. Some people are speaking against God and they are simply deceived. If you are a naturalist and your only starting point is nature and what you see and what you experience, that's your starting point. Do you see how limited your possibilities of where you end up philosophically are? They're limited if you start just with that. If you deny certain things and deny supernatural and deny some things, you are going to land on some certain conclusions. If you are rejecting the Bible because experts have said that you can't just take people's word for it from long ago, 
what you are doing, catch this, is taking their word for it today. It's not really that different. You probably haven't met the experts. You probably haven't checked their research methods. You probably haven't talked about them, about their predispositions and their past experiences. Blind faith is dumb for Christians and for non-Christians. The Bible condemns it. 62% of millennial young people that were surveyed in August in America are rejecting something they've never even read. Don't go there. Don't be in that camp. It's a dumb camp to be in. Christians, here's my closing message to you about this. Dawn is coming. We just sang about this. Dawn is coming. There is a day coming when the perfect but limited written revelation, word of God, will give way to the perfect and complete revelation of the living word of God. That's a good day. Look forward to that day. Today, right now, we see in part. The Bible describes it as almost like looking through a foggy mirror. We kind of know stuff. Dawn's coming. But until that day comes, get in the book. Cling to it. The things God is accomplishing in your life personally, in your family, in our church collectively, and in society are indispensable. This book is indispensable to it. Jesus said it this way in John 17. Sanctify them. Remember, sanctify from last week. It's change. It's who you are right now and who God's making you out to be. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus says. Then what does he say? You guys know it. Your word is truth. Let me pray. God, I pray that we today would see the excellencies of Scripture. God, anyone in this room who holds dear the Scripture, who values the Scripture, who has been blessed by the Scripture, does so simply because it's been a gift from you to peel their eyes open and see it. To all of us, God, in our flesh, the Bible is irrelevant. It's boring. It's not to be trusted. It's confusing. And it certainly isn't dear. And so, God, those of us who hold the Scriptures dear, we do not hold that over other people. We receive that this morning as a gift. God, thank You that it's as simple as blowing off dust from a book and opening it anywhere and beginning to feed ourselves. It's an act of grace that we can pick up and start that today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.